Hey, what's up, everybody? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast, and it's a Friday evening. Happy Friday. As I say about every episode at Nauseam, um, today it's not cold, but it's windy and dark and gloomy, and the sun, I don't really know if the sun exists anymore here, so there's always something. Always something, you know, you you can't, I, I was telling my mom this, I'm like, it would be nice if one day we just had like, I don't know, 50 degrees with sun, no wind, no cold, nothing, just a kind of normal, moderately fall-like, winterish day, but no, can't have that, so anyways, probably a little bit shorter episode today, going into the weekend, we'll be, we'll be back on Monday, but first off, I just wanted to say the... the Economy is just really fascinating me right now. For example, numbers have just come out from November and more jobs were added in November than expected, mainly in leisure and healthcare services. Also, people are spending more than ever before going into the holidays. Wages jumped 5.1%. I guess if you just heard me say that, you would go, damn, things are looking up. But then you look at inflation, for example, Okay, wages are 5.1% up, but what if inflation's closer to 7 or 8? Also, like, couldn't higher wages during this time make inflation worse and keep us in this crisis longer? It, it gets very, very complex, and that's why this whole situation is so confusing to me. It really is confusing to me because it's not your typical just standard pre-recession or booming economy because people's savings rates are not as good. People are are less likely to have more than they're making. The housing market is a nightmare. The Fed keeps announcing that they're, that they're more likely to keep raising interest rates. I am just really perplexed. Then you have like some people predicting a recession. Of course, there's always going to be a recession in the type of economy we have. So I guess if you keep predicting it, eventually it's going to happen. But, you know, there are also companies like Amazon for example, they're laying off more people, even going into the holidays, which is usually when they bring on more people, right? And there was an article in The Atlantic from a couple days ago that talked about why you should not buy a house right now. Now you have older millennials, people my age as well, who are just completely cut out of that market for a long time going ahead. And it just seems like, I don't know if we're in like a faux booming economy or it's kind of a smoke and mirrors economy or fool's gold or what, but everything's just weird right now. So I, I keep like, it's almost like every month I keep seeing, oh, more jobs were added than expected. You know, unemployment is about the same, but it's like, okay, maybe unemployment isn't the best way for us to like measure this situation right now, because if you're working, but not getting paid well and inflation's going up, you're probably just working to make ends meet, not because you're thriving. You know what I mean? Like it's, it just seems really complex to me. So who knows, who knows? But anyways, yesterday, moving on, we talked about the disturbing, very disturbing interview with uh, Kanye West and Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes, kind of a meeting of the minds or meeting of the maniacs, as I said earlier in the week. I was listening to someone else say this on the bulwark and I, I kind of have to agree is that like it was almost hard not to laugh when you saw this yesterday because it was just so pathetic. But then when you hear what they're saying, you're like, no, this is just dangerous and terrifying and problematic in about every way possible. But just seeing Kanye's fall, you know, uh, of course, he was always problematic. I mean, from the days when he, you know, went up at the VMAs, I think it was and called out Taylor Swift and didn't want her to get her award. 
we always knew the guy had problems, but now it just seems like the problems are, okay, you're a narcissist who doesn't want Taylor Swift to win, so you take her spotlight, to now basically self-identifying as a Nazi. Yeah, it's quite a change. <laughs> um, but anyways, since the lovely interview yesterday, which, on a side note, I'm surprised Alex Jones still has that nice studio because I did see today that he filed for bankruptcy. He owes about a million dollars to all the Sandy Hook parents after, you know, saying that their kids didn't actually die and they were crisis actors. I mean, despicable shit. And he owes about a billion dollars and he does have to pay this. He's filed for bankruptcy. Like, the guy keeps going, though. It, it does fascinate me. Not in a good way, but it fascinates me. But anyways... After this show, Kanye also posted a terrible picture of the star of David with a swastika in the middle, kind of a blurring image of that. And apparently this was the final straw on Twitter, because Elon Musk brought Kanye back and then finally decided to suspend him after this swastika image. And it's good news. I'm interested to see why that was the red line. Like, I know it's a symbol of hate and danger and genocide, but, I mean, Kanye's also said some other stuff prior to this that would have at least been a red flag for me. But I'm not Elon Musk. So, I mean, it's good he's off, but <clears throat> it's just... Seems like Elon is totally ruining Twitter and this whole, like, childish view of free speech that these guys seem to have. It seems to be slowly backfiring, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but that's just what I'm seeing. And what I want to talk about here first is... Basically, like, even if Kanye and Nick Fuentes have been banned on all, all these platforms, basically, it seems like the GOP does have a serious problem on its hands, and things are not getting better, and all their years of ranting about free speech for everything are kind of backfiring. And also, while they're willing to, like, distance themselves from Kanye and Fuentes, why don't we talk about the Paul Gosarts? Why don't we talk about the Marjorie Taylor Greens? It's less direct. Like, Marjorie Taylor Greens not out there saying, I'm a Nazi, but, you know, Jewish space lasers, Holocaust denialism, all that. Paul Gosart is a despicable human being. Like, it is troubling, and I think the GOP's, I guess, caught up. It's the dog that caught up to the car, or they've bit off more, they can chew, more than they can chew, and now the floodgates have opened. And I think Twitter kind of just letting everyone back on the platform has been part of that. And I feel like I've talked about this way too much at this point, so I'm sorry. But it really does seem clear that the right are getting what they deserve in regards to these extreme views being amplified. Musk has this view of like, you should be able to say anything or act like a fool and trolling is good. And like I've said numerous times, he's good at kind of doing the Steve Jobs thing of marketing and trying to get a brand out there. And he knows how to do that well. SpaceX, Tesla, yeah, people haven't believed him and he's been able to be successful. But at the same time, he clearly has a very flawed version of free speech in his head. And it's getting kind of old and getting kind of annoying. And I think he's completely burning twi uh, Twitter to the ground. And I think he's quickly become kind of a major new actor in blurring those barriers between the far right and the conservative mainstream. And it's something that back in the day... <laughs> You, you did have Republicans able to step up and make sure and keep that barrier in place. Like, throughout most of the 20th century, at least, they always kept the crazies kind of at bay. The William Buckley days, which seemed like a complete other era ago, Buckley always condemned the anti-Semitism and the racism that was always under the surface. But now it seems like the floodgates have opened, like I said. 
And Elon Musk has not helped that. He is restoring the Twitter accounts of figures banned for the promotion of violence, intimidation, misinformation, whatever, whatever else there is out there. And yeah, he took off Kanye. But like I said earlier, what about Paul Gosart? What about Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like there's so many worse people out there and they share his views. They also went to that, I, I forget what it's called, but they went to that stupid event that Nick Fuentes hosted. So yeah, I don't have a, a lot of hope there. And I feel like we can focus on Kanye or Musk banning him, but it just looks like the GOP has growing extremism right under its nose. And I mean, Mitch McConnell gave a speech, I think it was today or no, I think it was yesterday where he's like, there's no place in the GOP for that type of stuff. And I'm like, but there kind of is right now. Like Paul Gosart, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene, some of these types of people, they are that. They're just better at keeping it a little bit more quiet. And it's right under the nose of the party, right? And I read that the Southern Poverty Law Center has research that shows that a lot of previously banned white nationalists have already been restored on Twitter. And that's thanks to Elon Musk. And I think something even more troubling here is that GOP leaders such as McCarthy, DeSantis, Jim Jordan, what a winner, have really started to back up Musk and support his takeover of Twitter. Like, he's really become a darling of the right. And as he works to restore these accounts, to me it shows that the GOP really can't divorce itself from white and Christian nationalism. And there's so many candidates, remember in the midterms that wrapped up, like the Mastrianos, Kerry Lake a little bit. There's a lot of people that are in this kind of strange form of nationalism and this support of Musk just allowing all these people back on the platform. Like I understand some of the free speech arguments, but it just looks like they're not ready to divorce from the crazies because they know they need the crazies. I remember having this conversation with my uncle about a month ago when they were visiting in Chicago and we were talking about Musk and Twitter. I'll admit that when Musk first bought Twitter, I was like, eh, screw it, it's a cesspool anyways, what, what harm could he do? And surprisingly, he's actually really done much worse for it than I even thought was possible. But anyways, my uncle and I were talking about this about a month ago, and at first he thought, or first I thought he was being hyperbolic, but he seems to be right. He told me that when Elon took over Twitter, it would open the floodgates for rate, or for rate, for hate, racism, and making our politics just nasty and misinformation would spread. And all that has really been happening at warp speed. Like, I don't know if there's a coincidence that all this, like, crazy anti-Semitism is just blowing up right now, right after you're letting all these type of people back on these platforms, right? And Charlie Warzel, who has a good article today in The Atlantic, again, one of my favorite writers at The Atlantic, he has an article called The Far Right is Getting What It Asks For. And the headline is, With yay on Infowars and Elon Musk lifting the floodgates on Twitter, excuse me, the right wing is getting the free speech thunderdome of its dreams or its nightmares. And I would say, I mean, it's, I, I full-heartedly believe this is a nightmare for the standard, like, Mitch McConnell type of Republicans. Probably for Kevin McCarthy, too. Like, I'm sure those guys are just like, fuck, we need this out of here. But of course it's not going to. But anyways, I also think though it's a dream for the like Nick Fuentes and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Paul Gosarts. Like to them, it's just good having free speech happening on the platform again. 
But anyways, the article brings up something from a few months ago that I actually forgot about until recently just because so many things have happened. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I memory hole a lot of things. I conveniently forget things now because I just there's just too much to stress about. But the article talks about that infamous House Judiciary GOP statement that has aged as well as beer that's been left on a table for a month that's opened. And Warzel writes, if you're looking for a way to understand the right wing's internet poisoned extremist trajectory, one great document is an infamous January or January 6, October 6 tweet from the House Judiciary GOP that reads Kanye.Elon.Trump. This tweet was likely intended to own the libs by adding Kanye to an informal Avengers-style list of supposed free speech warriors and truth tellers. And I forgot all about this, but it is actually really interesting because this is the Ju House Judiciary GOP and they're putting out that tweet, right? And, okay, yes, these are three trolls that are... I think all three are probably narcissists. Like, that would make the most sense to me. And they're also three people that are really... Like, that tweet just is really, like I said, aged like an open beer that's been on a table for two weeks. Because it's Kanye. <laughs> since, since October 6th. Uh, I, I think fall from grace is too generous. Elon now just looks like a guy who a lot of us are losing respect for. And, well, Trump kind of lost his party the midterms. So, yeah, owning the libs, you have three guys who I don't even think believe in free speech. On this, pad, on this podcast, I've extensively talked about how Elon Musk actually is really not a champion of free speech. I've also talked about how Trump doesn't like anyone who criticizes him, so that's not free speech. And, well, I guess Kanye maybe is a free speech guy. I mean, he says a lot of bullshit, but... Yeah, and I think this tweet was telling because it really happened right as everything seemed to spiral out of control, right? This was, I think, I think October 6th was the week that Kanye wore that White Lives Matter t-shirt and then went on that insane diatribe later on about Deathcon 3 on the Jews. Adidas will never leave me because I can say anything about the Jews. Adidas will never fire me, then they fire him. Warzel also brings up a good point about how this tweet about Kanye, Elon, Trump has kind of been a barometer for the craziness on the right. And I think it's interesting because much like Trump's tweets from back in the days when he was still tweeting, this is also kind of an interesting barometer for how much craziness is going on. Warzel writes in the article, all throughout the at Judiciary GOP tweets stayed up. Over the past eight weeks, people have used it as a barometer for what kind of awful behavior the GOP will accept. And so it is notable that yesterday afternoon, it was Excuse me. It was finally deleted after Ye's calamitous appearance on Alex Jones's Infowars broadcast. So, it wasn't the meeting with a white supremacist who says we need to like put women in their place with violence. It wasn't Trump meeting with both of these guys. It wasn't Kanye saying, you know, some troubling things about the Jewish community. It it wasn't Elon letting white supremacists back on Twitter. But it was finally after Kanye just openly said he's a Nazi. So I think we see where the line is. Apparently, you can pretty much go up to that line, and they're, they'll still support you. But once you cross it, it's, it's too far. So <laughs> isn't that nice? The article also brings up a good point about how Republicans have been, you know, whining about free speech for years and have made this a serious culture issue. And I do think cancel culture on the left is a thing, but not, with, not the same way the left talks about it, or the right talks about it. And... With Elon buying Twitter, he's kind of done everything the right has wanted, but the ironic part is that it is backfiring. Like I said earlier, it's the dog catches the car, and 
I think Republicans are getting what they asked or tweeted for. And yeah, I, do they keep defending this? Do they keep going on? I don't really know. I really don't know. But it just seems like if the midterms were already a sign that people are a little bit worried about the direction of the GOP, I think if we wanted to get rid of Trumpism and get back to kind of a normal, real politic here in the United States, maybe the craziness will finally scare away everyone and no one's going to vote for them anymore. (laughs) Of course, I'm joking. There's people that will vote for Trump no matter what. But you would hope that maybe this would actually discourage enough like suburban women, moderates, Jews. (laughs) I don't know if you're going to get a lot of people voting uh, on the right now after this. But anyways, I don't know. It's all exhausting. Moving on, I want to briefly discuss discuss something here that I kind of tread on fairly lightly. It's troubling reports coming out of Israel that are centered around Benjamin Netanyahu reaching a, or I guess agreeing to or forming a coalition with a very far-right party, multiple far- extremely far-right parties. And I think this would be bad for human rights, bad for Israelis, and really bad for peace talks or any semblance of peace talks with the Palestinian Authority or just Palestinians in the area. And the reason why I say I try to tread lightly on this is because it's a complex topic, and like part of me does understand why the Israeli government are quite defensive and sometimes combative for their security. And I am definitely a supporter of the Israeli state, and I understand that they have a lot of haters in the area, so that does make you militaristic. And I think that's something that a lot of like American observers don't typically talk about, is that, yeah, when you're surrounded by people that hate you, it's going to make you more militaristic and on the defensive a lot. And it gets tough. I think there's a lot of animosity in that area. And so I understand the Benjamin Netanyahu type of guys who are quite nationalist, because I think in a sense you do need somewhat of a nationalist in these places. But that being said, I I don't like what I'm seeing with Netanyahu reaching a coalition with these very far-right parties, because there's a difference between defending and standing up against, like, Arabic extremism in the area, and then going on the offensive and saying, no, we're going to keep building in these illegal sediment, settlements that the, pretty much the international community is opposing, also homophobia, Islamophobia, etc. So I think there's a fine line, but it's something that I always try to be safe, fairly safe when I talk about. But anyways, Reuters notes that, in quotes here, Israeli Prime Minister Designate Benjamin Netanyahu, by the way, he's obviously been that for a while, but it was in 2020 that he stepped down. Now he's back after a successful election. But anyway, sorry, back to the article. In quotes, reached a coalition deal with the far-right religious Zionism party, bringing him closer to securing a new government after an election last month. There are serious implications for this deal. And with making this agreement with religions zionism or or religious zionism because this party will get control of the finance ministry as part of a rotation that occurs with these coalitions basically in these coalitions you have different ones taking control of different parts of the government and then it kind of rotates super complicated i am not an expert on israeli politics but it's something interesting if there is a parliamentary system here and so 
Also, the religious Zionism party will also have influence over policies in the occupied West Bank and the country's justice system. And we'll get into the justice system one later. But while I don't know a lot about this religious Zionism party, from my understanding, they make the Likud party, which Benjamin Netanyahu is the guy for, they make them seem moderate. And according to articles I've been reading on this topic today, um, the religious Zionism party opposes Palestinian statehood and supports extending Israeli sovereignty into the West Bank. Of course, the international community doesn't want that to happen. And it's just led to more and more clashes. It's also problematic because it will have influence over these territories and could cause a rise in violence, extremism on both sides of this conflict, etc. And yeah, not, not good at all. And, it's, and there's a fairly troubling art, article from the Times of Israel that discusses how six in ten Israelis fear for democracy, as Netanyahu has finalized his hardline coalition. And from my understanding, the new coalition was formed after another election. I think it was November 1st. And Netanyahu is now on the rise again. He's come back. Like, he survived lawsuits, criminal activity. This guy, he seems to just be a phoenix. Time and time again, rising from the ashes. And, man, they have a lot of elections in Israel also. Like, I think they've had five elections in four years. But that's a symptom of a lot of parliaments. And part of it, I say, is in a nutshell, maybe it's better to get people out, but also it doesn't create stability. But that's not what we're talking about today. So, anyways, this article notes that the survey from this uh, Times of Israel article found that 41% of respondents who voted for parties in Netanyahu's um, block said they were concerned. That's pretty pretty extreme. Almost half of those that were actually voting for Netanyahu's block are even concerned. The article also says 82% of respondents who voted for the parties in the anti-Netanyahu block also feel the same. And we have to remember that in 2020, when Netanyahu no longer was the leader, he was facing criminal investigations. Obviously, COVID was a whole situation at the time. Gantz, who is the leaving prime minister, and others formed basically this unity coalition that was kind of a mix of left and far right. Gantz is not like a moderate by any means either. But there was kind of a recognition that they needed to do something to replace Netanyahu that could make the country effective. So that was kind of nice to see. But anyways, this unity coalition only lasted about a year. I think it was less than a year because Netanyahu sought to block Gantz from replacing him as premier as part of a rotation agreement. And now the right has done very well again in this election and things are coming back around. From my understanding, Netanyahu is going to have a very difficult uphill battle because he's going to have to rein in the crazies. And that's why like, there's a lot to really talk about with this coalition. Because it actually seems like, if you want to compare it to US politics, it kind of seems somewhat like Kevin McCarthy in the House as he's going to have to deal with the crazies, get them some of what they want, but also like try to bring people back to some sort of sensibility. And I think that is the worry here, is like Netanyahu going to go further right or try to bring them back to his still pretty right nationalism. And I think probably it's going to be a little bit of both, but it just seems like it's not a healthy dynamic when you have these far-right parties kind of feeding off of each other. And like I said earlier, I do understand why Netanyahu is hawkish about safety and defense and hawkish towards Palestinian, Iran, and others. I do. And I think especially with Iran, he's correct to be hawkish. 
Because as we've seen, actually, under Trump, some of the agreements I did agree with was we did see Israel willing to talk with some of the Gulf states. Obviously, it's not a perfect agreement by any means, but I think we did start to see that there was some sort of agreement that could be reached with these countries. But if I was... If I was the Israeli Prime Minister, I would also feel a need to be very strong on defense. But the problem here is that some of these parties that he's allied with are problematic and I think are more theocratic than democratic, especially some of the views of these zealots. Also, Gantz, as I said, the outgoing Prime Minister, he's said that Netanyahu would probably tear the state apart if he doesn't manage to rein in the extremist parties he's bringing into his coalition. And again, that somewhat reminds me of the whole Kevin McCarthy thing is like, are you going to bring everything down? Like, are you like, are you going to be able to keep the crazies at bay? Like you're playing with fire here. And the Times of Israel also has an interesting point. The article writes here in quotes, Netanyahu has already signed coalition deals with the far right Atzma Yehudit, also the religious Zionism, as I mentioned, and Nome parties and is slated to finalize agreements with the ultra-Orthodox ultra Shas and United Torah Judaism parties in the coming days. So that's a, a really fun mix because, look, like I don't care what your views are, but I think the problem here is that you have, you have just the, the religious extreme coming into fruition here. And I actually saw that the mayor of Tel Aviv is concerned about Israel becoming a fascist theocracy, which is always fun. And while maybe that's an overstatement or a little bit too early, I do think that there's evidence that some people in Netanyahu's coalition are not great and probably would prefer a theocracy, right? For example, the Noam party is quite homophobic and they will be able to have enough power to use state funds to run what they call the new National Jewish Identity Government Agency. And from what I've understood is they also want to be involved in crafting education policies in schools that are very anti-LGBTQ+. And that's, I think, why the Tel Aviv mayor is concerned about what would happen in schools and what, what does it even mean, National Jewish Identity? It would be like if I'm like, hey, guys, I want to start a National American Identity what does that actually mean? What does that entail? And when you start like putting a box around what an identity is, you're always going to cut people out of it. And that's where you start getting into the us versus them dynamics of fascism. Then there's the head of the religious Zionism party, which I've talked about extensively. And like I said, he supports annexing large parts of the West Bank without, and this is the part that also terrifies me, without granting equal rights to Palestinians in those areas. So you're going to have a two-class, double-tiered society, which is always troubling. He also campaigned, <laughs> this is a fun one, he also campaigned on passing legislation that would cancel two of the three charges that Netanyahu faces in his criminal trial, right, because I said they would take over the justice system during the rotation. So that's another road to fascism, is the guy who's done crimes, you're going to get rid of them because he's a leader, and it's like, you know, punishment when it happens to the others, but not to the leader. And look, I think the United States needs to continue extensive support to Israel. I always would, would support the two-state solution. I, I think there needs to be talks. But again, I do understand why the Israelis are 
somewhat paranoid and defensive and support strong military to protect their borders. I've always been a huge proponent of that. But I also saw that since 2009, a member of the Likud party said that Netanyahu has completely, since 2009, stepped back from the two-state solution. Now you have guys in there who don't even believe the Palestinians have a right to their land. Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not good, and I think we could, we could see definitely more human rights abuses. And then we get to like the difficult international conversation of like what happens when a place like Israel keeps somewhat violating international law and keeps building these settlements in the West Bank? Like, what happens? You know what I mean? It's just not not a scenario that is great. And I was hoping this unity party would have lasted, but it did not. And here we are. So anyways, I want you guys to have a great weekend. I will be back Monday. I will be off actually Tuesday and Wednesday next week. Maybe, maybe I'll try to put out something on Tuesday before I before I'm out of town. But uh, but anyways, yeah, Monday for sure. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and sane. Stay off Twitter if you can, and you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, whatever else I missed. Peace.